fibromyalgia, it's real and you can treat it. We'll teach you how on this episode. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Dr. Daniel Claw, professor of medicine, psychiatry, and anesthesiology from the University of Michigan. Dr. Claw is a researcher and clinician who specializes in chronic pain and fibromyalgia. Needless to say, he is an expert on all things chronic pain. On this part two of our chronic pain slash fibromyalgia episode, Dr. Claw and I will get deep into the drug and non-drug therapies that work for fibromyalgia and chronic pain. Dr. Claw and I connected over Skype, and there was a little bit of audio technical difficulties, so I apologize for that, but I think the tape is totally passable. I think there's a lot of great information for our listeners here. And without further ado, here is part two of Dr. Claw talking about chronic pain. What I'd like to do for the next one is just kind of go through, definitely spend time talking about non-pharmacologic treatment and then and then go through some of the drugs in detail. And, and, and we'll definitely link to that JAMA article that you, because you, you were mentioning how it talks about how to titrate up medications, which I really find that a lot of these conditions, uh, internists are just not comfortable using these medications or if they haven't done it. Um, I've become comfortable using a lot of them now, but uh, we... It's just not something that I think is taught as well as it should be. So hopefully we'll be helping that with the, with today's podcast. No, I agree. And I mean, all, all these medications now that we use um, are used quite a bit differently in this setting than they were, for example, in the trials that were originally done for, you know, these classes of drugs, whether it's tricyclics, um, gabapentinoids, serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, and so and it, and if so for example if you are getting any of your information about those drugs from the companies uh you know who had those drugs you, they're telling you for example to give a gabapentinoid um like pregabalin um with half the dose in the morning and half the dose at night or or uh gabapentin three times a day equally mm-hmm. split dosages and those of us who use these drugs give either give the entirety of, of a gabapentinoid at bedtime or give about two-thirds at bedtime and one-third in the morning because they work a lot better that way. But, but again, the drug companies can't. That's not what the label says. The drug, that's not how the drug companies promote the drug, and, and that's not how most physicians are actually prescribing the drug. So the, thus the drugs aren't as well tolerated um, and they don't work as well um, as if, when you use them the right way. You know that it's funny you say that. I I did not know that. Um, I, and I have some patients that have actually just on their own started doing that. They'll they'll take their Flexeril at bedtime. They'll take their Gabapentin at bedtime, and they'll refuse to take a daytime dose, or they'll take a smaller dose in the daytime. So I guess sometimes patients are figuring this out on their own, or they're watching my YouTube video. Yeah, that that might be it. So the the YouTube video that Doctor Clow is referring to is uh, something that we will link to in the show notes. And it's called Chronic Pain, Is It All in Their Head? And if you just search Dr. Daniel J. Clow, uh, that will come up on YouTube. It's a, it's a fantastic video, and I am certainly going to be 
referring some of my patients to watch that. And I wanted to go through kind of like what would what would a first office visit be like if if you're newly diagnosing someone with chronic pain? How are you going to counsel that patient? Because that's like the pr- kind of practical knowledge that I want to pass on to our listeners. Well, one of the reasons that I made that video is it really is important to explain to people with this condition what's going on in their body and uh, because they've had this problem usually for 10, 20, 30 years and their perception about what's going on in their body is not at all accurate. And so you don't have time in the context of a, uh, even, a, even a new patient appointment that might be an hour long appointment. By the time you do the history and the physical and things like that, you might have 10, 15 minutes to talk to the patient at the end and it would be far easier to send them to this YouTube video, which is an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, um, and let them get a, a really good idea of, of what's going on. We also have a website for patients that teaches them self-management techniques called FibroGuide uh, that you should link to as well. But, but what I generally recommend that physicians do is, is when they suspect that someone might have fibromyalgia after that first visit, um, send the person to look at the video, to look at the website, uh, and then schedule a return visit, a lengthy return follow-up visit, mm-hmm. where that, at that visit you really talk to the patient about what the treatment options are and, and focus on both the non-drug and the drug therapies that can be helpful in this spectrum of illness. Can you? That website was FibroGuide. Is it just FibroGuide.com? Yeah, all one word, F-I-B-R-O-G-U-I-D-E dot com. And that website, uh, we actually did a randomized control trial of, of an earlier version of the website that's not nearly as nice as, that, as the current version. And that trial uh, showed that the website alone was uh, probably as effective as any of the drugs that are approved for fibromyalgia. And, and that's not because the drugs don't work. It's just that the effect size of of the website and of these cognitive behavioral therapies is quite large if you can get people engaged and get people to really do these things. That's why it's really important for the physician on every visit to say, you know, have you been going to the website? Have you been doing your self-management techniques? How how are you doing with your exercise? The, The more the physician reinforces that the patient has to play an active role in their illness and and is really tough with the patients if they don't, if they don't start moving around and become more active, if they don't um, go, at least go to the website and try some of the techniques in the website. Um, I, 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 won't, I certainly won't do this in the first or the second visit, by the, but by the fourth or the fifth visit, if I have patients that still haven't gone to the website, still haven't tried to start an exercise program, um, I'm pretty tough with them. And I just say, you know, that I'm not sure that you're really... Um, trying hard to get better, and I am not really willing to um, sit here and listen to you complain to me if you're not going to do anything that you need to do to get better. That's jarring for people, and, and that will usually have, that, that discussion will have one of two good outcomes. Either the person does go to the website or they stop coming to see you, <laughs> but that, that's okay. I, I'm fine with, with you know sending a couple people away that, that have just gotten, to, you know, to, to the point that they're not willing to, to play an active role in their own illness. Um, because I really think that, especially in people that have had this for 
20 or 30 years, you have to aggressively use the non-drug therapies. The drugs alone will never reverse this after someone has had symptoms for two, three decades. I think that's great. It almost sounds like you're you're acting as a life coach for the patient. And I, I'm wondering if in the pain center that, that you run, do you guys have a multidisciplinary team of people that are augmenting the physician visits? We do, but the, you know, the struggle with that is that those things aren't reimbursed. So we in the Department of Anesthesiology, we have a great pain clinic. And um, because there are procedures done in the pain clinic that are remunerative that we can afford to have other people in the pain clinic who, you know, it costs more to have the psychologist there than, than they can generate in revenue. Um, I, I think one of the things that will really, really help chronic pain patients is when our health systems move to pay for performance. The, the fee-for-service system is particularly bad for chronic pain patients because they get a a lot of expensive things like surgery and right. and injections and things like that 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 they that they don't necessarily need or benefit from and they don't get very much of the sitting down and talking to them and working through um, some of these non-drug therapies and, and 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 again judicious use of pharmacologic therapy do you so i am i'm pretty into physician wellness but also i try to kind of project some of that onto my patients. What non-pharmacologic treatments, other than the websites, the videos, anything else that you're using, acupuncture, mindfulness, things like that? All of those, acupuncture, mindfulness, almost all of the therapies that had traditionally considered to be, you know, complementary and alternative therapies um, are, have been shown to be effective either in fibromyalgia or in other chronic pain states. So uh, th- those a lot of those therapies are really working sort of on the mind-body axis. So I think a lot of them can be helpful, and I actually don't feel strongly which one people use. And in fact, I think one of the things that I joke to practitioners about is it's it's sometimes nice to uh, provide the equivalent of sort of a Chinese menu for patients uh-huh. that you can pick one from category A and one from category B is layout. Here are the non pharmacologic therapies that are like are the basic things you need to do the exercise the sleep the cognitive behavioral therapy here are a couple drugs we're going to try and then here's all things like yoga and tai chi and uh, biofeedback and uh, all sorts of other types of those those mind-body therapies and uh, have people gravitate to the ones they think are going to work the best because the placebo effect is a pretty strong thing. And if people think that the treatment that they're using is going to make them better, it's far more likely that it really will make them better. Uh, So I I think it's important to incorporate patient choice into the the, the treatment decisions for fibromyalgia or or more broadly chronic pain. And I wanted to know your thoughts on this. I I had heard one speaker, and I I can't remember the name, but the, the person said that the, med- the pharmacologic therapy in patients with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, is usually going to drop them on that 10-point visual analog scale. It's going to drop them about two points. Is that correct, or is, is is that underestimating the effect that these therapies can have? Well, on average, in a trial, it's not even that amount. Most drugs, you know, the, if you look at the entire effect, it's more like one, a little over one point. But the reason for that is that a lot of our drugs only work in the subset of people that has that underlying problem. So, for example, 
Um, if you give a group of patients with osteoarthritis a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, they the, the effect size of an NSAID or an opioid in osteoarthritis is almost identical to the effect size of pregabalin or duloxetine in fibromyalgia. So none of the analgesics work have have high effect sizes in any chronic pain state. And, it, and that probably is because of what I talked about um, early uh, or was that in each pain condition, there's up to three underlying mechanisms, peripheral, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and centralized pain. And what we see in a lot of people is they have a combination of peripheral nociceptive pain and centralized pain. So the NSAID and the opioid might work well on the peripheral nociceptive component of the pain, although I have to say I'm one of the most anti-opioid people in the universe in general for chronic pain. But, but let's just say that opioids can be somewhat effective for nociceptive pain. But that same person, if they also have superimposed centralized pain, you might have to use a drug like duloxetine or pregabalin or gabapentin uh, and or exercise or cognitive behavioral therapy to, to treat that component of their pain. So I think that one of the reasons we see these modest effect sizes in, in trials of all chronic pain states is that these are not homogeneous conditions and th that treatment that we're using is only working on one mechanism um, and all of our diseases that cause chronic pain um, have a bunch of different mechanisms intertwined. And and your uh, so non pharmacologic therapies can affect all those descending pathways potentially, so they could be even more beneficial than some of these pharmacologic therapies. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And and you mentioned opioids. I I certainly share your aversion to them for most patients, and I was very happy the the CDC guidelines that recently came out sort of uh, helping back us up when we sort of. Try, try to deny these uh, starting people on chronic narcotic medications. Could you tell us why they don't work in fibromyalgia? Well, our group has done several studies. Um, one uh, PET study using a muopioid ligand where we showed that fibromyalgia patients seem to be releasing a lot of their own endogenous opioids, endorphins and enkephalins. Those endogenous opioids then bind to those to their mu opioid receptors. That's what we showed showed on the PET study is that in people with fibromyalgia that had never taken an exogenous opioid, a narcotic analgesic, that on PET imaging with a mu opioid ligand, that they didn't have nearly as many um, unoccupied mu opioid receptors as the controls. And what that would cause then is that it would cause them to be less. Um, responsive to an opioid because there's less receptors for that opioid to bind to, less for it to work. So it really seems to be the case that in centralized pain, the endogenous opioid system is actually seemingly playing a role in centralized pain states. And the worst thing you, you want to do for someone with a condition like fibromyalgia is give them an opioid. You're, it's not going to make them better and it may make them worse. Um, and this is a big problem right now. Probably a third of the people in the U.S. with fibromyalgia are on an opioid, and we need to get these people off opioids before we can actually even start treating their pain. Many of them have opioid-induced hyperalgesia, you know, a, a well-known side effect of opioids. Um, and, and what you find is that when you get them off the opioid, their fibromyalgia doesn't go away, but at least it gets to a much more manageable state where then 
you know, the, some of these drugs that we've been talking about in non-drug therapies can work. Um, but if you try to use those drug and non-drug therapies when someone's on high-dose opioids, good luck. And one of the tough things about, especially if a patient's on high doses of narcotics, it's really hard to get them off of them. And I don't, I, I'm not credentialed to use Suboxone or some of these other partial agonists. Um, is there, is there a, an easy way to do this for us? Or is there a, a, a way you recommend for primary care docs to attempt this? Well, first of all, the, what the data show is that if people taper their opioids by, say, 10% uh, a week, it's highly, highly, highly unusual for their pain to worsen. And in fact, I give a, that, that lecture that, you, that, that there's the YouTube video of, I give every two weeks. And in that lecture, there's about 50 chronic pain patients that attend every two weeks. And every time I give the lecture, I ask people that are in the room, I ask of the people that are attending, how many of you used to be on higher doses of opioids and either you tapered on your own or your physician um, asked you to taper off or to a lower dose of opioid? And and out of 50 people, six or eight people will raise their hand every week. And I go through and ask them one by one, what happened when you tapered the opioid? Did your pain stay the same? Did it get worse? Did it get better? And and I would say over the course of probably now asking you know, three, 400 people that question in the context of these lectures, only about five or 10% of people said their pain got worse when they tapered the opioid about it's about 50-50 that the pain doesn't change or that the pain actually gets better as they taper their opioids. But what is powerful about doing that in the group setting is if I tell the people in that lecture to taper their opioids, they're not nearly as likely to do it as when I use this uh, group cognitive behavioral therapy. They don't know that they're getting group CBT. Mm -hmm. But I literally am using those other six or eight people in the room that, that might be sitting next to them the whole time and, and that they know I didn't plant these people in the room. And when they hear these testimonials, it's like, wow, I, I, I never would have imagined that I could lower the dose of my opioid and I wouldn't get any worse or I might even get better. So that's really important to, to reinforce to patients. There's actually data too. I'm talking about anecdotes, but there's, there's data showing that that slow taper without using Suboxone, without using anything, is very rarely associated with worsening a pain, and it's certainly never associated with any kind of withdrawal symptom. What about tramadol? Is that okay to use in these patients? It's okay. It's, it's probably, tramadol is probably more so a weak serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor than it is a, it's a, it's a very weak opioid. It wasn't even scheduled by the DEA for the first 10 years it was available. That's how little opioid activity it has. It has just enough opioid activity that if people want to abuse an opioid, they can take it. Um, or if they have a problem with addiction, they can get addicted to it. But it's likely that when it does work, it's working as, again, probably a, a, a weak duloxetine or milnasopran. Okay. Do you think naltrexone is going to become a more widespread therapy in the future for chronic pain? I, I mean, I think it can... I think it helps some people. And I think it reinforces the fact that in some of these individuals, there might be a excess um, of endogenous opioid activity. The, the people uh, at, that were originally at Stanford, now Jared Younger's at UAB, that did the naltrexone studies, think that 
naltrexone is working as a glial cell inhibitor, um, but our group thinks it's actually working as an opioid antagonist. Now, we, and we don't know who's right, and it doesn't matter. At some point, there's a lot of evidence that, uh, that for many individuals with decentralized pain states that you actually want to block the endogenous opioid system. You certainly don't want to give them a, a opioid analgesic, which would be akin to throwing kerosene on a fire. So I think we've dispelled uh, dispelled the myth that opioids will work for uh, fibromyalgia or these chronic centralized pain conditions. What drugs do you actually like to use and what drugs should primary care physicians become familiar with for these conditions? The mainstays are really tricyclics, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and gabapentinoids. And I and you can use all three together, but but obviously if you can get away with just one or two of those classes of drugs, that's better. But there are some recent studies that suggest that, you know, for example, using duloxetine uh, uh, and pregabalin together uh, had much better overall efficacy and actually less side effects when you put the two together than either the drugs had separately. They, it's almost like the side effect profile cancel each other out. So it's not uncommon to have um, people on a low dose of a tricyclic at bedtime. My favorite tricyclic drug is cyclobenzaprine. Most people don't think of it as a tricyclic, but it's almost uh, chemically identical to amitriptyline. You know, that is that is news to me. Yeah, that's a uh, 510... 15 milligrams of cyclobenzaprine a couple hours before bedtime is still my favorite drug for fibromyalgia. It's incredibly cheap. And um, the only problem with it is that if people don't take it a couple hours before bedtime, they, they might have some sort of morning grogginess hangover. But I really like low-dose cyclobenzaprine, uh, just a single nighttime dose. It, you can use a classic tricyclic like amitriptyline or nortriptyline, but I just find that Cyclobenzaprine just gets a, has a little bit more efficacy and a little bit less uh, AEs or toxicity than than either amitriptyline or nortriptyline in my hands. Th- that's a great point because I you would have say if I we had done this talk a week earlier I would have helped. <laughs> I had a patient last week trying to tell me they couldn't take their Flexeril because when they wake up in the morning they have to go to work they're too groggy but they were taking it at ten o'clock at night so. Maybe if I pushed it earlier to 7 or 8 o'clock at night, they would have been okay. Or even dinner. dinner. So a lot of people don't really get you know, real tired when they take it. And so I actually have people set a separate alarm clock for their cyclobenzaprine so that they remember to take it because it really does make a big difference in its tolerability if people take it two, three, even four hours before bedtime. Okay. And I want you to comment on the dosing of gabapentin because I, I see this underdosed a lot. So most of us in the pain field think that the the typical total dose of gabapentin that you need to treat pain is between 1,800 and 2,400 milligrams. But just as with pregabalin, where the total dose might be 300 to 450 milligrams, all of us really uh, use a disproportionate uh, amount of the dose at bedtime. So with pregabalin, I'll usually give two-thirds at bedtime and one-third in the morning with gabapentin. I may give it twice a day. I may give it three times a day, but but still I'm giving about two-thirds of the dose at bedtime. It's pretty clear that the gabapentinoids uh, are working in part by improving sleep and improving the depth of sleep. And so that's why 
giving a higher nighttime dose doesn't just seem to be effective. It really is more effective and better tolerated. And when do you give the, the duloxetine? Usually in the morning. So usually people will be on a, if they are on all three medications, they'll be on duloxetine or melnasopran in the morning, the cyclobenzaprine, a, a low dose at bedtime, and then the, the gabapentinoid, either pregabalin or gabapentin, either a single nighttime dose or a little bit in the morning and the rest at bedtime. We've recently, at Cashlack, we've recently gotten duloxetine as a generic. Is milnasopran still expensive? I, I really haven't seen that one around much. I, I've seen specialists using it, but is it still expensive? Yeah, milnasopran and, and pregabalin are still uh, brand name, so they're more expensive than than duloxetine or gabapentin would be. And, certain, and the same would be true as cyclobenzaprine is generic as well. Any other agents that, that we should be familiar with as primary care docs and general internists? Uh, I would just say I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating. I give a lot of talks on cannabinoids, but don't be dismissive of, if you're in a medical marijuana state, don't be dismissive of cannabinoids. They, if, it, if there was a synthetic cannabinoid that was approved in the U.S., um, it would be up there with a tricyclic uh, SNRI and a gabapentinoid as being the, the, the highest levels of evidence. There have been several positive trials um, of nabilone in fibromyalgia, but because it's not approved for use in pain in the U.S., um, I, you know, most of us won't actually prescribe it, um, and thus patients are left using uh, medical marijuana. But, but again, I, I think uh, that a cannabinoid is actually a good class of drugs for this kind of pain in contrast to an opioid. Um, and if it were not for the fact that people had to get it from a weed that I don't know the strength or the strain or the, or the ratio of THC to CBD, if it were a more controlled way of, of, of getting a stable dose of it, then I would be advocating even more strongly for a cannabinoid. But certainly don't thumb up your nose at um, a cannabinoid for this spectrum of illness. For all of these conditions like you know, you know, irritable bowel and interstitial cystitis and, and headache and things where, where opioids really for a long time have been, um, we strongly recommended against use. There's a, there's a lot of um, increased use of um, cannabinoids and cannabis. And, and we've just published a study uh, in Ann Arbor that a lot of people, um, that we do have med- a medical marijuana law, a lot of people are using it as an opioid sparing drug in the in the study we did, people reduced, the, on average, they reduced their opioid dose by two-thirds when they started using uh, medical marijuana. Wow. Now, I've seen some people are using Marinol for multiple sclerosis-related, I think, neuropathic pain. Is that a different mechanism? I, I, I'm ignorant on this. No. The, uh, the, actually, the two types of pain that cannabinoids are best established for our neuropathic pain and centralized pain, i.e. fibromyalgia. So Marinol would be a, a, an example of a, um, of, a, of a synthetic cannabinoid. I believe it's an extract. People that do work in dispensaries or people that have worked in states that have legitimate medical marijuana laws where there are dispensaries, they found that the physicians who practice in those states have really found medical marijuana to be very helpful. A, a big point of emphasis, if you're, if, if you're going to even not necessarily advocate it to your patients, but at least permit it, 
um, is they really should be trying to use it orally, bake it into a food, um, make it into a tea, because it's when you orally administer it, the, it's, uh, the level goes up slowly and you, people don't get high nearly as uh, often. The difference between smoking marijuana and, and taking it in an edible is the difference between methadone and heroin. Is that when you inject or smoke or snort a drug, the drug level goes up very rapidly in your CNS, and that makes it more likable. That makes it more, you gives you more euphoria. But in but when we're trying to use marijuana medicinally, we don't want people to get the euphoria, and so the, any kind of oral formulation is the preferred way to use it for chronic pain. That I mean, this has been this has been so great. The the last uh, two more things I want to ask. First, I want to just ask you for some take home points for your listeners, for the listeners, just to help us kind of wrap up here. Well, so one take home point would be you know learn to recognize this symptom pattern: multifocal pain with fatigue, memory problems, sleep disturbances. You can you know you can you once you see that once you get used to recognizing that symptom pattern, you'll start seeing it in sub-threshold uh, presentations and you'll, and you'll really start to see where these are individuals that if you treat them as you would someone with fibromyalgia, you'll find that they respond seemingly a lot better because they do, don't have as many of the behavioral and psychological comorbidities uh, yet. So get better at identifying that um, understand that this can be present in addition to a ongoing nociceptive pain condition like rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis or lupus or sickle cell disease. So don't just think that fibromyalgia can be present in isolation. Um, and then I guess finally, uh, understand that there's a lot of things that work for fibromyalgia. That JAMA article has probably 20, 25 different drug or non-drug therapies that are evidence-based. A lot of people just sort of throw up their hands in frustration and say, there's nothing I can do for these individuals. But um, you just have to sort of very slowly chip away at, you know, try different classes of drugs, be really aggressive about using the non-drug therapies, um, make the patient play an active role in their illness. And uh, we, you know, we talk about managing other conditions and managing illnesses. I, I really think that chronic pain is something we have to manage more so than almost any other illness. Because if you don't manage these patients, they'll manage you. Sir, sir, this has been great. I can't thank you enough. I learned a lot uh, during the interview and I'm just, I'm really excited to get this out there to people. Good. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. All right, sir. Well, I will be in touch and uh, you have a good evening. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This will help others discover the wonderful show. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or you can follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time... I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, hopefully next time with my co-host, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Thanks for listening.